0: Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, brought to you from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. The New Yorker journalist Patrick Rodden-Keefe exposed the Sackler family's role in the US opioid crisis in his hugely acclaimed book, Empire of Pain. And now he's back, with more tales of secrets and lies, detailed in a new collection, Rogues, True Stories of Grifters, Killers, and crooks. He sat down with Hannah McInnes to tell us more.
1: There's a lot to talk about in Rogues and to ask you about it, but I just want to um, start by asking, well, congratulations on the extraordinary success of Empire of Pain. You write in your introduction to Rogues, life doesn't stop when you publish, the story keeps moving, unfolding, fluttering its wings, your characters continue to act often in confounding ways. And I wonder how much you anticipated the continued life of Empire of Pain in the way that it's unfolded.
2: It's a great question. You know, I, I it was a strange moment to be writing that book. I wrote most of it during the pandemic. And the book covers really three generations of this family going back to Brooklyn during the Great Depression but then right up to the present day and in a way that was was pretty unusual for me I felt as though as I was finishing the book. I was sort of I was sort of in a race with current events. I mean that I I was News was breaking all the time on the Sackler story and my publisher got very frustrated with me because I kept Wanting to get back into the manuscript and update it and bring it right up to speed and um, at a certain point They just said enough pencils down. But then I, what I ended up doing was actually updating the paperback. So the paperback, which is now on sale in the UK, not yet here in the US, brings you up current uh, to a point where the bankruptcy case is more or less resolved. The Sacklers end up still effectively getting away with it in the end. But there is this kind of wonderful uh, poetic irony, which is that this family had spent half a century plastering their name on all of these very elite institutions and really in the in the year or so since the book has come out came out in hardcover we have started to see those names come down that so many institutions I mean just in the UK um the British Museum the National Gallery all of these really elite arts institutions are starting to to chip that name away and kind of erase the Sackler name in a way that I think will be um you know, it's not justice, but I think it'll be quite painful for the family.
1: That's not coincidence that that is happening alongside. I mean, the book had a lot to do with that.
2: I think it had something to do with it. I mean, I, I could hardly claim all the credit, though. I mean, I uh, one of the heroes of the book is Nan Golden, the mm. photographer, yeah. who starts a real campaign. Um you know, she, she came to the VA in London. Uh, she went to the Louvre in Paris, to the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, and was really pressuring these museums to take the name down. So when the name came down at the Met, for instance, I really think that was Nan Golden's doing more than anything. But yes, I mean, I, I, one thing that I, I set out to do with the book was to place an uncomfortable spotlight on the family and the origin of the, billions of dollars that they've made from a drug that has caused so much addiction and death. And so I I think that for some of these institutions, the fact that there was this kind of growing storm of controversy around the family made that continued philanthropic relationship unsustainable at a certain point.
1: Did you expect it to be such an enormously popular book? You know, it's been winning awards. It's been a bestseller. Was that a surprise to you? I wonder what you think you tapped into to to reach such such levels of readership across the world
2: you know it's it's a strange thing. I mean, on the one hand i as a writer, I think a lot about trying to write books and articles that are accessible to non specialists that are interesting that have that are kind of pacey and character driven and have a plot, you know, have twists and turns and I'm I'm thinking a lot about to be honest a lot of the time what I'm thinking about is my own experience as a reader when I pick up a book that I feel like I should probably read and I just can't find any purchase, I sort of feel like I can't get drawn into it. And so I'm I'm thinking well how would you pull a reader into a story that they might not necessarily have any particular interest in from the outside and then get a kind of undertow to take hold where they get drawn into the narrative? And before they know it, they've finished the book. So on the one hand, it feels good because I, I was trying to write a book that would be accessible to anyone and have some kind of seductive narrative qualities. On the other hand, this was my fourth book. I've I've had the experience of writing a book that I thought was quite good. Thank you very much. And putting it out into the world and uh, you know, and it and it doesn't catch fire. So I think that there's a great deal of serendipity and luck involved. And so in this case, I was I was quite surprised. I, particularly, I should say uh, that the book became a bestseller outside the United States, because in the States, the opioid crisis is everywhere. There's really nobody at this point in this country, you know, more than half a million people dead. And so most people in this country, directly or indirectly, are somehow connected to that crisis. They know some family that's lost someone. But it was really encouraging for me particularly in the UK to see the book take off the way it did and and the recognition that it that it uh that it
1: got. So with the um 12 stories that you've chosen to include in Rogues are you driven by similar similar things that you've just mentioned that drove empire of pain that wish to draw the reader in to pacey stories and and keep them page turning even if it's not necessarily within their sphere of interest is is it something similar that that drives you and your journalism you know across the board and and it clearly is something you are very dedicated to because whatever the story you have evidently given up you can tell i mean a lot of time and traveled miles to uncover and tell these stories
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I, to me, I, um, you know, I'm sometimes asked who, who the the ideal reader is or who the reader I have in mind is when I'm writing. And for me, it's someone who has just gotten onto a commuter train and they have a few stops and they pull a magazine out of their bag or they pull a book out of their bag or, you know, someone lying down to bed, they've had a couple of glasses of wine and (laughs) we've got them for maybe 10 minutes, 15 minutes before they nod off. I never take the reader's attention for granted for a second. And so for me, it's there's one part of the project, which is the research and the reporting. And that takes a long time. And I have this great luxury when I'm writing for The New Yorker, which is that they'll let me spend four, five, six, eight, ten months on an article and they will send me to the ends of the earth. And so they'll, they'll, they'll subsidize in a way that's all too rare these days in journalism, a depth of reporting that that. I'm very conscious of the fact that it's a luxury for me. And I think, you know, I think it's a luxury for readers to be able to, not just for me, but for any of the people who write for the magazine, to pick up a piece that somebody's spent the better part of a year on. But a lot of it for me is also just the storytelling and thinking about how do you engage a reader so that if there's a story about, I mean, pick your topic. There's a story about um, Chapo Guzman and Mexican drug cartels in Rogues. And what I was thinking about is there's a certain kind of reader who, when they see it's a story about Mexican drug cartels, they're going to turn the page. They'll think that's not for me, not the sort of thing I'm interested in. I already kind of know the broad outlines of that story. You can't surprise me. And the challenge for me then becomes, how do you take that reader and from the first words, engage them, sort of drop them into a story, into the story in a place that will be surprising enough that they'll follow you through and they'll engage with a subject that might not intrinsically have any particular interest to them. And that would be true for almost any of these stories. I mean, there's a story about wine. There's a story about insider trading by hedge funds. Uh, There's a story about a corrupt minerals deal in West Africa. There's no way that those topics are going to appeal to everyone on their face. And so what it really does is it puts a premium on the storytelling. How can you spin the yarn in such a way that you get people to engage?
1: So that perhaps differentiates these, um, or tell me if I'm wrong, from the goal in writing about the Sacklers, because many of these stories of corruption that really are phenomenal stories, they've, they've already you know, met their end. Or you're not generally seeking some sort of justice, perhaps, in, in them. It's about telling an extraordinary tale. Yes,
2: though. I would kind of say that about the Sackler book, too. I mean, this is a thing I think about a lot. I um, when I write, I have a point of view. You know, I think that the, the notion of journalistic objectivity was always a bit of a myth. Right. I have a point of view and I'm telling the story as I see it. It is a subjective rendering of the story. In some instances, I'm really outraged by something. And that would be true with the Sackler story. I thought, here's a family that's that's gotten away with some very terrible things. And at the time when I started writing about the Sacklers, they were still being celebrated and feted everywhere they went as these wonderful philanthropists. So I come in with a point of view, but I don't think of myself as an activist. I'm not setting out to change the world. I, I'm trying to describe the world in a way that feels hopefully really compelling and and do so in a manner that is factually rigorous enough that even though you recognize I'm I'm filtering all of this through my own my own perceptions that you have some trust in me that you trust that I'm going to go out and I'm going to I'm going to dig up the facts and present them to you. So in that sense I actually think of Empire of Pain as 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 very much of a piece with these these stories in this book where what really draws me in is intriguing characters dramatic events, there's always some degree of kind of moral dilemma or moral ambiguity or moral outrage that underrides the stories. But it's really the the story as a story that pulls me in in the first instance.
1: Just before we go in detail into some of these stories, um, I'm sure you must have been asked this before, because it's just a question that came often into my head when I was reading Empire of Pain, and then frequently when I was reading Rogues, as you walk into hotel rooms to meet these people, you talk to them, you email them, you begin your introduction with a sort of heart-stopping moment as El Chapo's lawyer contacts you. I mean, do you feel frightened for, for your own safety, having so much sort of liaisons with with so many people who are very dubious characters and a lot of people around them have met nasty ends.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny. So this is a running joke in my family. The uh, When my two books ago, my book Say Nothing came out, we had a big party at an Irish bar in Boston. And my uncle gave a big speech. And the premise of the speech was a sort of was the notion that what if all the bad guys that I've written about over the years got together and decided <laughs> to team up to to do away with me? But the truth is I, I'm i pretty careful. I have two young kids. I trained as a lawyer and I, I've never practiced law, but there is a little bit of that way of thinking that that comes naturally to me. So I think about risk and I calibrate risk and I'm not a war correspondent. There are places I wouldn't go. And then I think most importantly, you, you know, there, there's a tendency, I think, for some journalists, perhaps especially American journalists, to to get a bit drunk on the sense of their own heroism. And I I, I have a bit, just aesthetically, I have a bit of an allergy to that. I, I, I I'm not going to be telling stories about my own repertorial daring do. And I I've reported in places like Mexico, where the truth is that it's incredibly dangerous to report on the narcos in Mexico if you're Mexican. And if you're an American like me and you have this passport and you can get on a plane and go home, it's a lot safer. And it was the same thing when I wrote my book about Northern Ireland. I mean, there were things that I was able to say in that book, in part because I don't live in West Belfast. My family doesn't live in West Belfast. And so there was a sort of license I had to leave at the end which makes me reluctant to portray any of what I do as, as, uh, as all that brave. Because honestly, in comparison with, with the kinds of people who, you know, Russian journalists writing critical stories in Russia today, there's just, there's no comparison. So yeah, I mean, I, I think I'm sober and mindful of the risks and I, th- I think about them and I try to be careful, but I don't know that there's, um, when I go to sleep at night, I'm, I'm not fearful for my own safety.
1: The 12 stories in in the book are hugely different but you have chosen a title that links them all this word rogues you know what would you say if there's anything links them all together
2: Yeah I you know I thought about this it was a strange thing putting together this collection because it's 12 stories um that cover about 15 years of reporting for the New Yorker, and I obviously wrote a great many stories beyond these ones. These were yeah. um, these were sort of the greatest, the greatest hits, the ones that meant the most to me, or or had meant a lot to readers. And um, what's so strange is, at the time, as I was writing them, I didn't I didn't think of myself as embarked on any particular project or having any one beat. But in retrospect, when you look at the pieces, I do keep coming back to certain themes. And so for me, it would be you know it's most of the pieces are about people with very forceful personalities who have a kind of rebellious nature and they're either pushing the limits of the law or they're living outside the law. Some of them manage to kind of bend the law to their own needs. So what they end up doing isn't considered illegal, but in the sense that they, you know, it's essentially like it, you get caught for speeding and you see, how, you know, see if there's a way for you to raise the speed limit to uh, to make it acceptable. And so it's those types of personalities and those types of dynamics that I keep coming back to. I'm really interested in the the sort of strange line between what's considered legal and illegal, licit and illicit. And so, you know, this was true with my with my Sackler book where part of what drove this huge drug crisis in the United States was not illegal drugs. It was actually Big Pharma, these these sophisticated, ostensibly respectable big pharma barons. And then the flip side of that is there's a story in the book about uh, this guy, Munzer Al-Qasar, who was known as the Prince of Marbella, this Syrian arms merchant who lived in the south of Spain. And he was a bad guy who was basically busting embargoes and sending weapons to people who shouldn't have them and arming terrorist groups. But he was very helpful to the intelligence services of a number of Western countries, and so he was kind of protected. So there's somebody who's living way outside the law, but actually does so with impunity for a long time because he was so useful to national governments. And so it's it's those types of themes that I I keep coming back to.
1: I I think that that um, is 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 not just in 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 Al but just runs through so many stories. To me, the rogues themselves weren't almost as shocking as how much and how often they get away with it, it you get away with murder, quite literally, and live in plain sight and live in luxury. I mean, this is a theme that to me runs through so many. And you just think, how is this possible? It makes me question that the, the world that we live in, I mean, the, in the chapter that you were just describing, you say, how do you prove corruption? Sorry, this is actually in the chapter about um the African iron ore. But it, 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 to me, is something I'd love to hear your thoughts on. How do you prove corruption? By its nature, corruption is c- covert. Payoffs are designed to be difficult to detect. The international financial system has evolved to accommodate a wide array of illicit activities. Shell companies, banking havens may make it easy to camouflage transfers. You go on and you talk about um, the fact that This is all spun by wealthy professionals in London and New York. It's quite disheartening. This isn't just in certain countries. This is in Switzerland. Your rogues live and get away with it. This is in London. This is in um, the United States. And it's almost perhaps that you're trying to say that the rogues here um, are not the drug stealers and the arms dealers and the money launderers and the murderers. It's the people who are letting them get away with this.
2: Absolutely, it's the white shoe professionals and yeah, and this is this is one of my big big themes I mean this was true. So in the in the essay in the book about Chapo Guzman You know in the United States we talk about the the Mexican drug cartels and the drug trade and isn't it terrible all the corruption in Mexico and they're sending these awful drugs up into our country and we never talk about the fact that what drives that whole market is American demand for drugs. And in fact, what drives the violence is American guns, which are laughably easy to purchase in this country and then get smuggled down south into Mexico. So there's always this discussion of the corruption being Mexican drugs being sent north and never of American guns being sent south. And it's that kind of myopia, right? It's that blindness. I wrote a, a, an essay recently for The New Yorker, not in this book, about the oligarchs in London. It's the same way, right? You have these law firms, certainly you have PR advisors, you've got all kinds of financial advisors who assist setting up these offshore trusts and so forth. There is a whole economy in places like London and New York of these sophisticated white shoe influence peddlers and service providers who really accommodate and underwrite A huge amount of crime and corruption and I think that if there's one thing that I keep coming back to it's the idea that it's all too easy from these Western capitals to kind of sneer at the perceived criminality in the third world or wherever it is and not to take a close look at the ways in which these sophisticated professionals might be sustaining that very criminality.
1: Well, talking about sophisticated professionals, one of the people who makes it in as a rogue is Mark Burnett and found that chapter utterly fascinating. I'll let you tell people who might not know who he is. And perhaps you can explain why he qualifies in your mind as a rogue who makes it into this book.
2: There's a little bit of give in the title, right? And so there are some people who are not criminals i mean there's also a there's an essay about anthony bourdain who so in, in the subtitle i talk about rebels as one of the categories and i would certainly include bourdain in that um and in burnett's case i mean he's this fascinating guy he grew up in east london he was a, a paratrooper a british paratrooper who fought in the falklands and after leaving the military, he was on his way to South America, where he was going to go and work basically as a mercenary. I mean, he was he was going to be a uh, something like a weapons and tactics advisor, or whatever the euphemism that he used was. And he had a layover in Los Angeles International Airport, and he just walked out of LAX. So he arrived in America, changed his mind about what he was going to do. He decided he would stay in LA. Uh, he arrived in America as an undocumented immigrant, uh, without a green card. And initially he's sort of hustling on the boardwalk, uh, in Venice, you know, selling t-shirts and slowly becomes a TV producer. He makes his way into TV producing. And he had a, he had a show called eco challenge, And then the show that really put him on the map was he discovered this Scandinavian early reality TV show in which a bunch of people are sent off to an island and they have to fend for themselves with cameras watching. It was called Expedition Robinson and he licensed the name and decided it needed a new title and it should be called Survivor. And Survivor became this juggernaut, this massive hit. And everybody wondered what Mark Burnett, this kind of sage of reality TV, would do next. And his next big project was The Apprentice with Donald Trump. And so Burnett is this guy who, through a kind of uh, a kind of vision, I mean, I think he is a kind of genius. He's a very shallow genius, but a kind of genius created Donald Trump as an emblem of business success and projected him into tens of millions of households as this icon of savvy decision-making and kind of plutocratic wealth, which was very much at odds with who Donald Trump really was. And so I was very interested in that, in, in that story and kind of figuring out who's the, who's the guy behind the guy? Who is this British TV producer who uh, I, th- I think many people at this point acknowledge, you know, without Mark Burnett, Donald, there is no Trump presidency. It's really because of The Apprentice that Trump was able to end up doing what he did.
1: And there's an extraordinary moment you talk about the moment when uh, Jimmy Kimmel just pointed at him and 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 totally blamed him for that. I mean, just just to quickly stick to that for a moment. I mean, you give great insight into the real um, life of of Donald Trump sort of pre-apprentice, this crumbling empire at every turn, an extraordinary ca- character. That um, you know, when Mark Burnett went for dinner with him, he he was expecting something lavish. But you, you you continue.
2: Yeah, so, so Burnett, Burnett uh, you know, he, he cast Trump. And the interesting thing is originally The Apprentice was supposed to have a different mogul each season. And the thinking was that they would change the 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 guy in the boardroom or the woman in the boardroom each season. But Trump was such a huge success that they decided to keep him on and really built the show around him. And so in these these early years, when Burnett develops this close friendship with Trump, at a certain point, Trump invites Burnett to dinner at Trump Tower, and Burnett is expecting something quite refined. And he gets up to Trump's gold-plated airy, and <laughs> Trump hands him a McDonald's cheeseburger, because that was what was for dinner, when the two of them were going to you know, have a, have a quiet meal, Shea Trump.
1: And there's yeah there's so many more stories like that that people will be able to read about him. And I was fascinated by the, the notion of just how much um, of Trumpism still has all, all the echoes of reality TV that you, when you draw those parallels. Uh, and there was recent um, evidence or, or recent news that, you know, more of the news stories are still about Donald Trump, more news stories almost about Trump than Biden. And he's not even uh, in power anymore. And it sort of speaks to this, you know, speaks to your story, that he's entertainment, that he's this magnetic personality that that people are are drawn to.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm really glad you picked up on that, because that to me was the underlying theme of that whole piece, was the idea that Burnett's, Burnett's real, malign, brilliant but awful vision was to recognize at a certain point that politics is just entertainment by other means that you could you could kind of build up an entertainer to a point where he might plausibly seek national office and that so many people had bought into the totally fraudulent fake version of donald trump that mark burnett sold to the world that you might conceivably get 70 million people to come out and vote for him on the basis that they essentially believed the kind of Wizard of Oz uh, reality TV version of the guy. And I think, sadly, Trump is gone. And for me personally, I'm sure it must must have felt this way even to people on that side of the Atlantic. There was this wonderful dividend when Trump was out of office where I felt as though I don't need to spend hours each day just kind of rubbernecking the slow moving car accident that is our national politics you can just sort of allow politics to be boring and 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 function in the background without you feeling the need to devote quite so much attention to it but of course there's a sense in which I think the whole media apparatus, and this is true for TV news, it's true for newspapers, it's true for The New Yorker, for my magazine. Trump was great for business, in part because even if you were outraged and you hated him, people, you know, they felt as though it was almost like charitable tithing. They would—they would, it was It was suddenly patriotic to give money and subscribe and read these articles about how outrageous it all was. And so there was this strange sense in which we were conflicted, right, because that was good for business. And Trump goes away. And what does the media do? It focuses on him even now that you get more coverage, as you say, of Trump even today than you do of Biden.
1: I love how you're talking about politics being something that can possibly quietly be in the background just as just as as explosive as it could possibly be. And I'm interested. And you you said, of course, these um, are some of the many stories that you have written over the years. And these are about rogues and all the different variations. There are only two women in here. And one is in fact not a rogue. She defends rogues. And the other one um is a very interesting story. Did that happen by coincidence, or do you feel that there's a strong male element to the sort of corruption and the and the roguishness and, and perhaps you felt you should put a woman a sto- one of the stories about a woman in?
2: Uh well there's so first of all there aren't only two. I mean Astrid Holator the Dutch woman. Uh, oh yes.
1: The, well, the, I wasn't the, thinking yeah. she was the rogue. I was very Not much the, thinking but, it was her yeah. brother.
2: Yeah. I mean, it wasn't really by design. The um, and there are certainly. I mean, my second book, *The Snakehead*, was all about a woman who was very much a rogue, a, um, a human smuggler in Chinatown in New York. I don't know. You know, it, it's funny in the case of um, or for that matter, you know, my my third book, *Say Nothing*, was was primarily about Dolores Price and her sister, who were two women in the IRA. But I mean. It's interesting that you should raise it because in the case of Say Nothing, part of what appealed to me in the first instance was that I read an obituary of Dolores Price when she died in 2013 and I hadn't really thought about the idea of women in the IRA. That whole story had been such a male story in the way it was told. I learned that she had been a hunger striker in Brixton prison in 1973. And that kind of blew my mind because again, in the sort of mythology of Irish Republicanism, it's Bobby Sands. It's this very kind of male uh, idea. And there's something similar in the story that you reference about Amy Bishop, which is in the book. Amy Bishop was a mass shooter who shot a series of her colleagues at the University of Alabama in 2010. And it's very, very unusual to have a woman who is a mass shooter in the states? I mean mass shooters, as we know, dime a dozen. Uh, your your politics are happening in the background and and in my country, you know we can we can log on after this and there will probably have been another mass shooting at the rate we go. but they're overwhelmingly committed by men. In the case of Amy Bishop, that wasn't actually what drew me to this story. What was most interesting to me was her mother. So what happens in that story is that in 2010 Amy Bishop shoots a series of her colleagues, six she shoots six people, three of them die uh, in Alabama. And after the shooting, it emerged that in the 1980s, when she was 21 years old, she had shot and killed her younger brother with a shotgun. There was only one witness to the episode. It was her mother. The mother only had two kids. So she walks into the kitchen. She witnesses her daughter shoot and kill her son with a shotgun. And when the police came, she said, I saw the whole thing. It was an accident. And to me, the the moral locus of that story was actually not Amy Bishop at all, because I think she was just kind of nuts. And I'm not interested in people who are I'm not particularly interested in mass shooters or I mean, similarly in another of the stories you reference, which is about a death penalty lawyer, Judy Clark, who represents the worst of the worst, she represented the, the Boston Marathon bomber. And so he's a minor character in that story, but I don't really care that much about why he decided to set that bomb. That 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 to me is not um is not as interesting as the the moral calculus for his attorney, for this woman who devotes so much of herself to trying to spare the life of somebody who's clearly done an awful thing. So I don't know. I mean, I don't I don't know that um I I don't know that I'd be ready to say that women are less prone to roguish behavior. Uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't read too much into um, the, the the disproportionate statistics in in these twelve stories.
1: I, I'd love to hear more about why you included um, the, the the one you were just mentioning, Judy Clark, who represents the worst of the worst. And um, it it stands out exactly. You you don't choose. To really talk as much and to focus on the suicide bomber as the, as the rogue, but just to explore why she devotes her life to this cause, to representing, as you call it, the worst of the worst. Um, I just really love to hear from, from you your explanation of sort of why that fascinated you, particularly linked to the death penalty itself, and why you wanted to include it in, in, in this series of essays.
2: Yeah, of course. I mean, it's interesting. So, you know, you mentioned earlier the idea that there is a sort of that there is a kind of soft corruption and an impunity in places like London and New York that is often facilitated by professional class. And I I, I trained as a lawyer. My wife is a lawyer. I have a lot of friends who are lawyers. And I think a lot about the um, the ethics of that job of being a a, a very high end extremely capable service provider who plunges into often quite morally fraught situations and picks one side or another. And so, you know, in my book about the Sacklers, I'm pretty tough on the lawyers for the Sacklers, because I think that uh, even though it's an adversarial Business as they say, I think it's a little bit morally suspect to spend 10-15 years of your life Representing really awful people who are engaged in doing really terrible things Judy Clark is sort of the flip side of that But also not right because she's this very capable death penalty attorney who's opposed to the death penalty and if you know anything about the death penalty in the United States, you know that there are many, many, many innocent people who are on death row, that the system is broken. And so there are all kinds of people who get death sentences who actually haven't even committed the crimes. And you might think that somebody who really opposed the death penalty would kind of focus on those people. Get Let's get the innocent people off. Judy Clark doesn't do that. She goes for the most guilty people, the people where their guilt isn't even a question. They've done the most appalling things. So... Zacharias Musawi, the 20th hijacker. She represented Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, people who've done just appallingly gruesome things that I, I won't even describe for you here. And her whole premise is that nobody's born evil, that something had to happen to these people to make them do what they did. And so she's trying to find the humanity in people who, most of us, I think, would, would, would really struggle to see the humanity in. And I find that fascinating. I think it's a fascinating choice and I was really interested in how she went about that, what that would require psychologically and ethically. And I should say, just to sort of set up the stakes of the story, at the point where I was writing about her, she was representing this guy, Jahar Sarnayev, this quite young kid who was one of, uh, the only survivor, Um, you know, his brother had done it with him, but he died of this the he he planted the the bombs in the Boston Marathon and I thought she was going to lose I thought she was going to lose that case I thought going in this kid's going to get the death penalty and at that point she was undefeated she'd never lost a case she'd never lost a client to the death penalty and so for me it was almost like writing about an undefeated athlete I wanted to be in the courtroom watching her work uh on this this huge case that I thought ultimately she was going to lose and um so that was what what drew me to her. I should say i don't think she's an i don't think she's an uncomplicated saintly figure i mean I, I i wouldn't have been drawn to her as a subject if i did i I think that there's a lot of moral complexity and a bit of moral vanity in what she does
1: and when you write about her, just like with a, a you do sit down with some of your subjects, but you say at the beginning that you you love the challenge that what you call and people might not be familiar with write arounds pose so you don't directly interview your subjects. You, you get so much information from people who know them, have met them in all sorts of different environments, family, friends, colleagues. Tell us about why you get so much from that um, from that way of, of researching and why you embrace that challenge in a way that perhaps, as you say, others don't and others want very much to get it from the subject's mouth.
2: Yeah, I mean, I should say I always try and speak with the person I'm writing about, but if they decline to speak, I'm not going to quit or not write about them. I take that as a challenge and the challenge then becomes how can I write around them In such a way that I can I can produce a compelling portrait where you feel like you've really come to know them. And that means different things in different circumstances, right? Sometimes it means that I'm looking at other interviews they've done or letters they've written or interviewing friends of theirs or employees of theirs or colleagues or sometimes it's spouses or ex-spouses. In the case of Judy Clark, she wouldn't give me an interview, but I sat with her in the courtroom for weeks and weeks. And so it's a strange thing where she wouldn't talk to me. But I was close enough to touch her and could watch her work and I think that um, I think there's a lot to be said for this approach in part because I tend to think that in journalism access is really overrated I think particularly when you're talking about people who are powerful or savvy about the press what access often means in practice is that they really can control a lot about that story is that you'll have lawyers involved and PR people. And sometimes they're negotiating in advance what amounts to quote approval. Often you'll have people who these kind of fixers who come in and say, yes, you can talk to the CEO or yes, you can talk to the athlete, but these areas are off limits. You can only ask about this and this and this. And to me that even in major newspapers, I mean, even, big big profiles of of sort that people read all the time. A lot of the time it feels a little close to PR to me. It just feels as though in order to get access the reporter has sacrificed so much independence in how the story will be told that there's too much control on the part of the subject. And so I always want to talk to people I always want to get that interview. I always say to them up front, listen, this will be much better if you contribute But I'm not going to allow you to control the rules of engagement to a point where I won't write the story if you don't give it to me. It's just going to make it that much more challenging for me to kind of do the extra legwork to produce a really compelling portrait in the absence of that central interview.
1: Well, I'm intrigued also by the difference between the characters who see themselves as rogues and those who don't. Uh, you know, you have for the whistleblower who, who sees himself as a, an Edward Snowden. I mean, perhaps you can tell us that story because you said, you know, objectivity is a myth in journalism, but you don't, you do leave a lot to the reader to decide who you think to be an actual rogue in that story.
2: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I should say that the um, I perceive my job as going out and gathering the facts and then presenting the most credible, compelling version of the story that I can. I love it when I write a story and people disagree how they feel about the central character. I love that. I feel as though I'm I'm really doing my job. If you can you can present a picture of somebody that's three dimensional enough that uh, that a husband and a wife can read the same article and then argue over dinner about yeah. how they should feel. And I should say Judy Clark, the woman we just talked about. There are some people who read that story and say, "What an absolute saint! Isn't she amazing? Um, we should all aspire to be that good." And there are other people who say what a huge waste of her talents that she would focus all of her energies on trying to mitigate the punishment for these terrible people who've done these awful things and i am i embrace that I, I like that people would you know would not read what i'm writing as an op-ed or something where i'm or an indictment you know something where i'm i'm trying to persuade them of one point of view or another in the case of falchani his this is part of what makes him such a rich character he worked at hsbc the private bank in geneva And at a certain point, he absconded with a huge amount of private client data. And at the advent of the financial crisis, he started sharing it with various countries, particularly in Europe, and saying, look, you know, you've lost all this revenue and you have these wealthy citizens of, say, Spain or Greece, who've been hiding their fortunes at HSBC in Switzerland. And he was initially embraced as this kind of Edward Snowden figure. But as I delved into it, I went to Paris, I met with him. And I pretty quickly con- concluded that he was he was a compulsive liar, like we we had this long conversation and none of his story made sense. And as I dug deeper, it emerged that what he had really wanted to do was sell the data, that he stole it for selfish reasons. And then he got caught. And at the point where he got caught, he started turning over the data to these different European countries. And for them, they said, look, it's this Edward Snowden type figure. They embraced the idea of him as this kind of martyr for transparency. And so he was thrust into this uncomfortable role because I really don't think that's how he started. And so his evolution through the course of that story, I thought was great fun. And that was a story I actually almost pulled the plug on when I realized he was such an unreliable narrator. But Mm. I thought it it could make for a fun story to lean into that unreliability.
1: We're talking about this sort of antithesis, I suppose, of denying you are a rogue. Uh, perhaps the truest rogues are the ones who really just own it. Um, and really, when you tell the story, it's it's hard to think that it could possibly be anything other than fiction. And for me, that is sort of really El Chapo, who you, who you write about. And perhaps you could just People will be able to read in detail, but some of the extraordinary stories about his escapes. I mean, let's, for example, tell people about the bathtubs and the tunnels.
2: Yeah, I mean, El Chapo, it was kind of a master of escape. You know, he was this guy who'd grown up in the mountains in Mexico, and he really pioneered a lot about the drug trade. I've always been interested in the drug trade as a business. So obviously, these are criminal organizations, but they're quite innovative, multinational commodities enterprises as well and so el chapo was the one who invented the tunnel underneath the border he was the one who who first had the eureka moment when he realized you have these great fortifications on the u.s mexican border but what if we just built a tunnel underneath and since then there have been hundreds and hundreds of tunnels dug all along the border and my story the the hunt for el chapo which is in this book is about this effort by authorities to finally track him down he'd been living on the lamb for years and years And it emerged that he lived in a series of safe houses and he would move from one to the other. And I got into all the kind of logistical complexity of this because, for instance, he loved gourmet food. So even when he was on the run, he needed access to good food and he was a a prodigious consumer of Viagra. So the other big logistical challenge was getting Viagra to wherever he was hiding. And so he kept kind of just evading the authorities And at a certain point, this team of Mexican Marines bursts into this house where they have fresh intelligence that tells tells them he's there. And they go through the rooms and they're empty and they go into a bathroom and they see that the bathtub has been raised on hydraulics. And they look underneath the bathtub and there's a set of stairs down into a tunnel that leads to the sewers. And so he'd actually devised this tunnel network between the different safe houses where he was living that fed into the sewers. And there's this escape. If you've seen the film... The Third Man, you know, it's like a scene out of The Third Man with El Chapo running through the sewers with one bodyguard and the Mexican Marines chasing after him. And that time he got away, though ultimately he was captured and is locked up today.
1: Hey there. It's, as I said at the beginning, evident that you, I mean, you travel far and wide for your stories. You spend um, clearly a great um, deal of time on them. You work for the New Yorker where that is the structure, long form, meticulously researched articles that people need to dedicate their time to reading. Do you worry that Twitter, social media, the digital age really makes news a so fast, but also makes it possible for anyone really to, to be a journalist Is that a threat to the type of journalism that you embrace? Or is there also a sense that at the moment, people are coming more to that long form to to try and preserve it in that fast age?
2: Yeah, I mean, I guess I would give two different answers to that. I think that the there, there was a lot of worry at the New Yorker at the point where people started reading the magazine on their phones, because there was a fear that people wouldn't read a. 10,000 word piece on their phones and we quickly got over that because it emerged and we have the data to show it people will read they will spend an hour scrolling with their thumb through a long piece and to me that that was important I, I say in the book but you know I think that the the 10,000 word magazine article is kind of the perfect form I love it and that's it's 12 of these in the book in the sense that you can sit down and really get immersed in a world but you're out of it in under an hour that you know it's it's you'll read it in a sitting and then you can kind of move on to the next thing and I, I love that I think that will continue to thrive on the web and in some ways I think social media has actually been great for it in the sense that there's a kind of curatorial function where if a piece is really great it doesn't matter if it came out in Guardian long reads or the New Yorker or the Atlantic or wherever it is um, if it's a great piece the democracy of social media will kind of keep bubbling it up and more and more people will be able to discover it. What I worry about is that particularly social media, I think, has uh, created these sort of echo chamber, finely tailored in- information universes that people live in. And that has led to a skepticism about really the, the existence of objective reality, right? It's it's I have my facts, you have your facts, This is very true in this country. I would say it's it's true in yours as well. I mean, we've seen over Brexit or any number of other issues, similar kinds of debates where it feels as though people are talking past each other and not to each other. And that, to me, feels like a threat to the whole enterprise because part of the reason I'm doing what I do is that it's you know we have fact checkers at the New Yorker who come in and check every fact and. And that means something only as long as people accept the premise, right, which is that there are facts and that you, you can kind of gather facts and arrange them in a story uh, that isn't just purely agenda driven or uh, seeking to to appeal to one particular constituency. So, so that I worry about and I worry about the business model. I mean, what I do is expensive and it costs the New Yorker a lot of money to, um, to send me around the world, to hire fixers, to hire interpreters, to pay for court documents. Lawyers, when I'm writing about nasty billionaires, you know, you have lawyers who have to very carefully vet everything I do. And all of that is pretty resource intensive. So I'm optimistic about the idea that people will continue to read long stories. I, I worry more when it, when it comes to the business model and how you will finance the sort of reporting that I do and, and that I think is, is essential for people to do.
1: I think that I, 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 I did ask you this question that Patricia's asking, but um, I'm going to ask it again and, and add one to my own to it. She says, what do rogues have in common, if anything? I think, you know, we did dis- discuss that. But what I might add to that is how Anthony Bourdain, as you say, fits in, because he's the one where I think you keep on reading, waiting for the crime and it doesn't come.
2: Yeah, there's no I mean, with Bourdain, I was very important to me that he be in the book because I spent a year getting to know him. I traveled with him. It was all happening as his life was falling apart. And it wasn't too long after the article came out that he took his own life. Part of the reason I wanted him in there is that here's the answer to your question about rogues. I think for any of us, there's a sort of a a slippage between the life that we're living and the choices we make and then the stories that we tell ourselves and others about those choices. So I think, you know, when you look at yourself in the mirror in the morning, you try and explain why it is that you are doing what you do. And I think all of us transgress, usually in small ways. And if there's one thing that a lot of the rogues in this book have in common, it's that they're very, very good at lying to themselves. And lying to others in a way that justifies those transgressions and I actually think that sometimes you know if you can if you can tell yourself a lie about the little transgression then you can tell yourself a lie about the big one and so it's that kind of deviation from the path that I'm interested in Tony Bourdain was wonderfully self-aware and so in a strange way I think part of the reason that he ended up living a relatively righteous life is that he kind of knew all the places where he was broken when he looked himself in the mirror he he um I think he was telling himself a pretty honest story about who he was, and to me that's that's uh you know notwithstanding the the awful way in which his life ended I think that's a that's a lesson we could all we we, we could all do well to learn
1: absolutely I, I think that's what I was trying to get at um when you say that everybody is so well able and well equipped to convince themselves. Of, of that, what they're doing is is virtuous, and and I think that that's one of the most intriguing things. Reading every single one of your stories, because you come at them from you know what they've said themselves, what people around them have said, and that's why I was intrigued by this idea of people who perceive themselves as a rogue, and the stories that they that they tell themselves to sort of justify what they've done. But when you see the ones who have essentially repented there's two in the book if i'm right who turn to religion and to me that repentance is something that signifies an admission of guilt that perhaps the others don't have
2: yeah it's so fascinating i hadn't thought about that but you're right i mean it's um and even chapo guzman honestly i mean i think there is a kind of roguish winking quality that a lot of these people have where they sort of like living on the edge and they know that it gives them a certain charisma a certain appeal but even Chapo Guzmán tells stories about how you know he grew up as a the child the illiterate child of a poor farmer up in the Sierra in Mexico and what choice did they have but to grow poppy and sell heroin yeah i i agree i mean i think that there there are there are a few who come to repent but one thing that i've become very convinced of over the last two decades of writing these kinds of stories is that the villain in the story never thinks that they're the villain in the story. They think they're the hero of the story. They think they're in a whole different story altogether.
1: With the exception of Amy Bishop, you wouldn't say?
2: I mean, Amy, I don't want to give too much away about what happened with her brother. And and, and my sense of Amy in my conversations with her is that she was heavily medicated, and psychologically very fragile and unwell and so I do think I mean she told me that she had she had found god and that she was born again and and I I I'm, I'm sure that in moments that's true and I also think that she can't really deny what she what she did but there's a moment I mentioned in the piece that I thought was so revealing when I was talking to somebody who was a, a friend of hers who ta- they would always talk about the the accident with her brother, the accident that had happened in the 1980s when she shot her brother, and at a certain point we were talking about the mass shooting in Alabama, and this person referred to the accident in Alabama. And again, I, I you know, I don't. This was not a, a bad person. This was not a criminal himself. He was a friend of hers, right? But it's it's that way in which our own brains will will, will kind of trick ourselves. And he had kind of slid into this into this language in which he's using the passive voice to describe a mass shooting in which his friend was the one pulling the trigger and so even with amy i don't know that um i don't know that the repentance is necessarily complete
1: oh, it's absolutely fascinating um, a complex complicated insight into the human mind um and as you say you don't want to give too much away i hope that we've i i you definitely have skirted enough around the edges dived in just enough for those who haven't read it to certainly want to pick the book up and and find out more about all the intriguing stories and we've come to the end of our hour so um thank you very very much for for all your brilliant writing and for sort of capturing us with it all thank you very much and thank you all of you for coming thank you
0: thank you so much this episode of the podcast starred Patrick Radon Keith and was presented by Hannah McInnes. The show is edited by John Doughty, and this episode was produced by Luke naylor Perrott The series is made by me and Esme Bright with special thanks to our former co-producer Dana Outcult. If you missed it, there were more stories of Crooks last week from author Alice Sherwood. You can find her conversation with Hannah wherever you're listening to this. Until next time, I'm Vas Christodoulou.